Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Ungersargon. And this is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate. So this week we are talking about the topic that everyone is talking about, of course, which is the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, Body, I don't know about you, but I am just thrilled to get into this discussion. It's what everyone is talking about, and I can't wait for our guests to talk about it. But who are our guests today? Our guests are Noah Rothman and Zed Jelani, two brilliant guys. I cannot wait to hear what they have to say about it. I'll tell you, Josh, I've been feeling very alone because there has been this sort of bipartisan consensus developing around Biden's decision to withdraw and the way that it took place. And I find myself alone admiring him, except for a few other people on the far, far left with me. I, I think he was so brave. I thought his speech was really moving. And um, I, I really, it's its shocking to me to see him sort of standing alone and weathering this all by himself. What about you? What have your thoughts been this week? I admire the what the youths these days would call degaff nature of the speech, um, that don't give a you know what. He truly kind of double, tripled and quadrupled down in one speech. Um, so I admire kind of the recalcitrant, stubborn, sticking to one's convictions that he has quite clearly held for over a decade now. Um, I nonetheless think that the way this was handled um, will be remembered for decades, uh, perhaps even longer than that, as a tremendous, tremendous dishonor and stain. Um, these images from the Air Force of the Afghans falling off the planes, uh, the, the the prisoners, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda prisoners freed, um, just the, the equipment left behind. Um, this was just done in such horrific fashion. And I say that as someone who has long urged us to ultimately withdraw from this third world backwater that is Afghanistan, where we, where we no longer have a strategic interest. But having said that, um, we will see where Noah and Zed come down. But before we get to that, we do want to give a quick plug to our sponsor. It's Herzog Wine Cellars. You can find them at HerzogWine.com. We love having them as a sponsor for Newsies the Debate podcast. So go to HerzogWine.com and start your own wine adventure today. So we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, Noah Rothman and Zed Jelani on Afghanistan. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. Today we are discussing and likely debating uh, the hot topic of the week, the month, possibly the year, which of course is... Well, we are all seeing unfold before us in Afghanistan. Um, so, Badia, without further ado, let's hop right in here. We don't want to waste any time. Who are we going to hear from today? We could not be more thrilled with today's guests. We are so, so grateful to Noah Rothman for joining us. Noah is the associate editor at Commentary Magazine and a contributor at MSNBC. And we are so thrilled to have Zed Jelani on as well. Zed is a journalist, a frequent and beloved Newsweek contributor, and a co-founder of the Substack newsletter inquiremore.com. Noah, Zed, welcome to the debate. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So thanks so much to both of you. So um, I, I, I don't really even know where to start with this one, obviously. I mean, like the images that we're seeing unfold on our television screens and our Twitter feeds, uh, it certainly is like nothing we've seen in, in in American and really global politics since at least kind of last summer's riots in the aftermath of uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. But let, let's just dive right in here. I mean, let's kind of just give kind of like uh, each of you like a 90 to 90 second to two minute kind of summary of, of, of what your thoughts are and like what we've seen happen basically in Afghanistan over the past week. So let's um, uh, it's, a, it's a tall order, I realize. Um, but uh, uh, Noah, let's start with you. Sure. Yeah. Um, extraordinarily tall order. Well, uh, I guess we have to go back about a week, um, at which point um, the uh, culmination of the Taliban's advance following our uh, gradual and then precipitous withdrawal after be beginning in May and, cul and culminating in July, um, we saw a, a profound amount of fighting around provincial capitals culminating in the siege of Kandahar, which compelled the Biden administration to re-engage in the region to again execute airstrikes, um, which they had pulled and they had stopped doing. Uh, that was ineffective. Kandahar fell. And then subsequently, every other provincial capital fell up to uh, in the weekend following uh, or the weekend preceding Kabul's collapse about 48 hours. 
um, the Friday night, uh, the the Afghan National Army essentially dissolved, and we witnessed the Taliban fighters uh, take the take the capital city basically un, uh, unmolested, un, as a, un, an open city practically. And in the days that have followed, we have seen a nightmarish series of consequences as a result of this policy. Um, I would take a 30,000 foot perspective and say that advocates uh, on the right and the left for American retrenchment for from Afghanistan have seen what many of us who opposed that policy warned, more war, not less, larger troops deployments to Afghanistan, not fewer, a vastly better armed terror supporting state, not more American security advanced offensive weaponry in Taliban hands, which has not renounced ties to Al Qaeda and which American planners now believe will become home and host to insurgent groups and, and terrorist groups that want to export terrorism. European allies vocally attacking the United States as a NATO ally for abandoning them and leading them into a morass. And lastly, American citizens up to possibly 15,000, we don't even know, who are stranded and helpless and at the mercies of this terrorist organization. And we seem to be unable to offend them by clearing uh, uh, clearing out a pathway to, exam for example, retaking Bagram Air Base because the air base we're trying to evacuate from this, this commercial airport is insufficient and, uh, and unequal to the task. It is a colossal national security crisis. And the Biden administration's response so far has been to pretend that it's not. And that's just not catching on. So, Zed, let's give you a chance to, uh, you know, articulate your standpoint there. I, I guess specifically, though, I'd be curious for you know, look, a lot of folks on both, the, on both the left and the right have supported a withdrawal from Afghanistan for a long time. This is America's longest war, of course, even longer than than Vietnam. Um, but what we what we're seeing happening is is horrifying. Um, and I think even a lot of us who have called for a reduction, ultimate withdrawal, are still kind of apoplectic with rage, frankly, at what we're seeing. So, um, definitely want to give you a chance to respond to thirty five thousand foot altitude question. But specifically, I guess, um, even from like a pro withdrawal standpoint, what went wrong here? Yeah, I mean, I want to start by saying I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, like, you know, I've never been there, don't speak the languages there. Uh, but I do happen to know a fair bit about policy towards it, because I, I worked at the main think tank that was allied to the Obama administration, staff the Obama administration in the you know, mid 2000s Center for American Progress. And I was privy to debates there about what they felt, uh, you know, the long term game was in Afghanistan and Afghanistan. And I felt, you know, during the entire time, I, I, I had a very strong feeling that what was being presented was not really realistic based on the goals and, and general history and strategy of the United States. I mean, the U.S. military is very good at defeating other, you know, at defeating our actual security threats, right? Nobody has our aircraft, you know, carrier fleet, our fighting force and our men and women are among the best in the world. And I think we're very good at fighting wars and, and, and beating enemies. Uh, but what was happening in Afghanistan was a different thing. It was nation building, right? Uh, there's a very good report in the Special Inspector General's report for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the SIGART report. Um, it was released in August. It's it's something I encourage everyone who's listening to this to read through just to document what went wrong, because I think there may be the only part of the government that has been honest about what went wrong. Uh, I want to read from that report. It says that in many cases, the U.S. government's very purpose was to usher in an orderly revolution that would replace existing Afghan social systems with Western or modern systems. If the intention was to build institutions from scratch, understanding and working with the country's traditional systems was unnecessary. As one former senior USAID uh, official told Sigar, we wanted to give them something they never had before. Uh, and then they conclude, but instead of being a society deconstructed to its foundation by conflict and prime for the introduction of Western political, economic, and judicial systems, it turned out Afghanistan was a complex society with ingrained traditions and an incorrigible political economy. These traditions were either ne were neither easy to uproot and replace, nor could they have been shoehorned into a Western institutional framework, as evidenced by the attempts to use strongmen of warlords to build a nascent bureaucracy. Uh, I think that this report was obviously compiled over a very long period of time, but it was prescient over what happened over the past month. Uh, we saw that the Afghan National Army and security forces basically didn't exist. I mean, many Afghans talk about this as talk about these people as ghost soldiers. Uh, you'd have a commander who said, oh, I have 50 people under my command. Turns out they only have 10 people. They're not getting paid. They don't want to fight. Uh, big parts of the country, particularly in the rural areas, I think were sick of the war. They had had over 20 years of civil war and much longer than that, if you know anything about the history of the country. Uh, they were being pounded with air power in the past few years because America didn't want to invest the number of troops to actually patrol and control these areas. They wanted to pass this off to the army. 
And I think a lot of those people just were sick of the fighting and they made deals with the Taliban uh, to, to end the war in their areas. Um, unfortunately, I think that the best intentions that we have presented ourselves with in terms of engaging in this war just didn't quite measure up to reality. Now, where I do want to meet uh, Noah halfway, and I think I'll meet you, Josh, as well, is that in, in the withdrawal, I think we've seen some things that will go down to history the same way, uh, you know, even, even the comparison to Saigon doesn't really compare to what happened at the airport. I don't, there was no excuse for having people who were trying to leave, who had worked with the United States, who have uh, talent and assets that we could use here in the United States and in Western Europe and other parts of the world, uh, clinging to airplanes, falling out of the sky, uh, being crowded at this airport. I mean, apparently the U.S. military struck a deal with the Taliban in Qatar uh, to allow them to take the presidential palace if they allowed us to control the airport. So it really wasn't even the Taliban's fault that that was happening. That was pure mismanagement on behalf of the U.S. military. But I think that was also microcosm of what we were doing the past 20 years in the country. Uh, I'm a big booster of America and the American model and liberal democracy. But it's very, very hard to impose that on a society on the cheap. So I know it's it's shocking that I would say it's on the cheap because Americans would say it was 20 years <laughs> and we spent a trillion dollars and thousands of debts. But think about it. Would you really want to impose a state system on a place that doesn't have one? It can take centuries. That's what the British did in the subcontinent. It took them centuries to build up an office accord and a bureaucracy that was later inherited by Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And that's part of why, you know, these type of organizations could never take over the government in those places, because they do have a real infrastructure and bureaucracy and a sense of nationhood. And such a thing just doesn't exist in Afghanistan, and it wasn't going to be created in 20 years. So let's hold off on the kind of, um, you know, revisiting, um, you know, ec democracy exportation and and, and all of that. We, we, definitely, we definitely want to get to that, but let's kind of focus on like the here and now for at least a little bit longer here. Um, so, Noah, I guess, you know, you touched on this a little bit here, but um, I, I, if you could just elaborate for us on what specific concrete steps the Biden administration, and if you wanted to extrapolate, the Trump administration specifically has done to get us to this just horrifying situation where we're seeing what Zed is saying, like the people on the tarmac, the Bagram Air Force Base overnight evacuation, uh, the prisoners, uh, Al-Qaeda, Taliban that are being freed. Um, what? Yeah, I, so I, I guess my question is, even accepting the premise that Americans are, are divided on withdrawal, how could this have gone better even if we were committed to slowly, gradually reducing our troops? Well, we don't necessarily have to commit to gradually reducing our troops, quite frankly. Um, all Joe Biden had to do was nothing at all. Uh, he inherited a peace deal that uh, Donald Trump negotiated for him in 2020. And that peace deal um, contributed perhaps to the, the intangibles associated with a loss of momentum. Uh, it established for the Afghan National Army and the Afghan government that American support for their state was finite. Um, which can have a demoralizing effect, um, although it's an intangible thing, it's hard to quantify. Um, but what Joe Biden had to do was maintain what he inherited. He inherited a very modest footprint, American troops to the tune of 2,500, 3,000, operating from within bases, behind high walls. You know, you heard Afghans talk about for years prior to withdrawal that it was difficult to find an American on the streets, quite unlike, for example, Russians or everywhere. You just couldn't find an American. They just were hard to, to see because they were operating uh, from behind U.S. bases, maintaining uh, uh, close air support and executing drone strikes. Uh, that was the mission in Afghanistan. It was affordable. It was not costly in terms of lives or dollars. And the consequences of withdrawal are everything that everybody said they didn't want. Larger deployments, more de destabilization, well, greater terror threat, according to the United States government. So, yes, what the Biden administration could have done is nothing. Second, if they were inclined to pursue this Trump policy, you know, the Biden administration, very protective of Donald Trump era policies. Um, but if they were inclined to pursue this policy, uh, they could have done so with even the modest, most modest amount of foresight. Um, we evacuated the military before we evacuated our civilians. That is a recipe for disaster, just on an intuitive level. You don't have to have, uh, you know, a, 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 a epaulets. You don't have to have brass to know that that would be a disaster. We, um, Joe Biden, uh, went off on a bunch of nonsensical tangents about how uh, our SIVs didn't actually want to get out. The Afghan government didn't want to get out. And they didn't want to you know, have a panic or something along those lines. The backlog of SIVs is tens of thousands long. It's probably shorter than it should be. Um, the notion here, he said, you know, the, the Afghan people didn't fight. They didn't want to fight. They didn't have the will to fight. We engineered this debacle. It's not as though this happened entropically. 
We cut off air support, reluctantly, as I said, around Kandahar, recommitted to it only at the 11th hour, and it was insufficient. We cut off the capacity of, of support staff to um, maintain vehicles, maintain helicopters, for example, essentially grounding uh, the Afghan air, the extent the Afghan Air Force exists, essentially grounding it. And then we say, oh, they don't want to fight for us. Right now, at this very minute, 600 Afghan soldiers loyal to the Dantian regime are, are helping us secure this commercial airport, allowing us to evacuate Americans. They're helping us right now. An out, outrageous slander against our allies, and one that will have reverberating effects across the planet Earth as revanchist and irredentist powers in places like Beijing and Moscow wonder if really if the United States would go to war for the sovereignty of Taipei, for Tallinn. Would they? I don't know. I don't really think they would. And I can guarantee you that the Kremlin and Beijing are thinking the exact same thing at this very minute. So, Zed, um, Noah, the consummate professional that he is, did not take the bait there on my question, uh, quite ably so. So um, I, I guess my question to you then, Zed, um, so again, let, let's hold aside the broader foreign policy discussion. I, wa- I do want to get to that. I want to get to kind of the quote unquote forever war in Afghanistan, like, uh, you know, nation building and all that. But granting the premise that what's done from the previous administrations was done and the fact that this you know, at, by the end, by the time Trump was out of office, a 2,500 member residual force. I think I saw Nikki Haley say this is like the 12th largest military presence the U.S. has in any country. It, you know, it's dwarfed in comparison by, you know, the DMZ in the Korean Peninsula, uh, Eurocom, Germany, et cetera. There's plenty of examples here. So holding aside the previous decisions that were made, what was the argument for even getting those 2,500 out to not try to preserve the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I think if you remember, if you recall the debates that happened early in the Obama administration, Biden has always been like a, an actual skeptic of this war, at least when he was like in the executive branch in the government. He didn't think it was worth surging troops when Obama did it at that point. And uh, if you look back at the Cigar Reporter, the Afghanistan papers that are published in Washington Post probably didn't do much to improve Afghanistan that surge. So I would I would tend to lean with Biden on that. Uh, there was more corruption, graft, and not really much more than a skeleton of a state built. But I think Biden was frustrated with with just being involved in this conflict uh, as a whole. He didn't see he doesn't see Afghanistan as a vital interest. I think when he gave his speech, finally, I I, I think Noah and I would probably agree his communication on this has not been very not been very good given the the timing of events. But when he finally gave his speech explaining what he did, he laid out what was basically a realist foreign policy doctrine. He doesn't see Afghanistan as a vital interest for the United States to have a, a presence there at all. And he doesn't see uh, the progress that he wants to see in the Afghanistan government uh, to continue supporting it. Because, yes, it's true, we had a small troop presence, but we were using a lot of air power and airstrikes. We were subsidizing the government. I don't know, something like 90% of Afghanistan's GDP was probably based on foreign aid and and U.S. taxpayer dollars. Uh, He wanted to extricate. And I think, you know, my friend Shadi Hamid said that it was one of the most cruel speeches, you know, he had heard a U.S. president give because he believes in democracy promotion he believes in a very international america and, and to some extent i do as well um but i think biden doesn't i think biden is a realist he didn't want to be involved in the situation and i think he understood and i think he's probably correct that if he reneged on the deal that the previous administration struck which by the way was popular in afghanistan if you look at asia found asia society polling something like 90 percent of afghans wanted a, some kind of peace deal start with the taliban even though the taliban is not popular um if he had reneged on the deal, the Taliban probably would have just renewed their renewed their side of the violence. You know, they had basically calmed down and bided their time because they thought America was going to leave. Uh, if America didn't leave, I imagine we'd be seeing a lot more American casualties when really we hadn't seen one since February 2020. And we'd be seeing, of course, casualties across the, uh, Afghanistan with, with their military and security forces. So I don't know that biden really could maintain a small presence for a very long period of time i think the alternative would have been to ramp up again and to you know have a hundred thousand troops there and have a much more serious go at state building because i don't think what the us was doing was very serious i think they were ticking boxes for ngos and trying to impose you know gender values and things that are kind of insane to try to do in afghanistan quickly uh they would have had to do real state building the way that the british did in india right like that's actual state building uh, what America was trying to do is trying to have it both ways, say, oh, we're not going to sacrifice a lot of Americans or spend a lot of money there. Uh, but, you know, we you know, we, we can't stay forever, blah, blah, blah. But if you really wanted to commit to doing that, you'd have to commit to doing that. You'd have to be there for generations. I don't think the political will existed in America. I don't think Biden wanted to do that. And, and that's, you know, it is somewhat unfortunate if you're someone who really believes that it was achievable. But 
you know, I just don't think the political will existed. And I think that's why Biden went ahead with, with Trump's plan with some modifications, because, you know, they left a little bit later than they said they would and so on and so forth. All right, so, uh, no, I'm sorry. May I respond very brief, briefly to that? Because it's it's very important. Brief response for sure. Uh, and then we'll take a quick break. But go, go, right, short, ahead. go right ahead. Very quickly. Um, yes, Zai's right. Uh, the Biden administration reportedly was afraid that if they reneged on this deal, that they would have to reintroduce a larger footprint to secure American forces. We have a larger footprint in there now. It would have been about 6,000 troops. That's exactly who we're inserting into this territory now. Um, second, I take issue with the notion that this is the execution of a, re a realist foreign policy. It is highly ideological. The notion that we have, we don't need to have a permanent military presence in a country that borders Iran, Pakistan, China, and the former Soviet republics of Central Asia is nonsensical. We do, and we and we do, and we maintain those presences. The notion here that Joe Biden thinks we can execute over the horizon strikes in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan from the Persian Gulf is makes very little sense to me. It's not realistic. And on what intelligence? What friendly intelligence are we going to gather from a Taliban-led government? Um, that is not a realistic perspective. That is a very ideologically motivated foreign policy. So let's take a quick break here. Um, again, this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We're debating the Afghanistan withdrawal with Noah Rothman at Zedjelani. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more from those two. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. This is Newsweek's podcast, The Debate, and we're talking to Noah Rothman and Zed Jelani about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So um, I want to actually pick up with Biden. You know, Biden is uh, sort of classically ends his speeches by saying not God bless America, but God bless our troops. He seems really invested in um, the lives of working class men in America in general, specifically in terms of the military. And, and I actually felt that his speech was really moving and really beautiful. I never thought I would hear an American president say not one more death. Um, and so I, I'm alone, I see here in this in this group, but I'm very interested in, in what your responses to that, both of you, you know, this question of, um, A, by what right do we continue to sacrifice those lives to this unwinnable war? And also, B, just this question of um, the legitimacy of our presence there in the first place, like where does that legitimacy come from for Noah, for you, for sure, um, Zed, for you, more um, kind of, I guess I would ask you, do you agree with Noah that there was a national security rationale ever um, for that presence and, and where you both stand on that now, uh, you know, to what extent is national sovereignty important when we think about America's values uh, in the context of uh, the globe? Uh, let's start with you, Zed. Yeah, I mean, I do think there was a national security interest in obviously holding Al Qaeda accountable, you know, ar arresting or neutralizing the people who are responsible and disrupting their networks uh, following the September 11th attacks. Um, but it's very interesting. Like, again, I keep going back to the Cigar Report. The Cigar Report describes the United States being in Afghanistan to fundamentally change Afghan culture. Like, if you look at, like, even if the Taliban did not exist at all, I, I promise you, Af Afghanistan would be a highly unsatisfying place to, <laughs> to Americans and their values. 60% of Afghans think that women should wear either a niqab or a burqa in public. That's in, that's in uh, Asia, Asia uh, society polling that they conducted, I think, over the past couple of years. Like, that's if the Taliban didn't exist at all. Like That's the kind of place Afghanistan would be in the near future. Um, but I do think that there was an initial security interest in disrupting and, and dealing with Al-Qaeda. Now, is there going forward a, a pressing need to have United States troops in Afghanistan? I mean, most people would say no. Like Most people, honestly, at DOD or in the military would tell you that it's not it's not an absolute need. I do think what was keeping us there um, was this promise of nation building and this idea that we could fundamentally transform this country into something that isn't. Um, it's not too different from, I think, people in the United States who say, oh, we, we can definance police and depolice cities and we can just pour a bunch of money into social workers and you know, uh, affordable housing and we will, we will solve a security problem. I mean, it's, it's actually somewhat of the same mentality. I think the United States 
failed to establish the basics of a state and the basics of security and trust between people uh, before it was trying to enact a social agenda in many parts of Afghanistan. And I think that was just an unfortunate decision and, and it involved a lot of arrogance. Now, I do agree with Noah that like, more so than many lefties, I do think that China is a, is a pressing threat to the United States. I do think that it, it is our major rival in the world. What they've been doing with vaccine diplomacy has been blowing us away, and that's a shame. Um, but I don't think having some troops in Afghanistan is necessarily going to be the way to counter China. And I think if you if people in the Chinese government were to speak to you honestly about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they'd be laughing at us for investing so much of our blood and treasure in places that they you know, they have transactional relationships with, but they're not going to send the PLA. They're not going to send their army to go and sit in these countries and try to transform their culture over decades. Um, that isn't really the way to, to address those threats and those challenges, which are primarily economic and diplomatic. I do agree there should be a security shield around Taiwan, but look, we're not, we're also not going to be sitting in Taiwan trying to transform a culture for 20 years. We're just basically going to say that, you know, we'll protect you uh, because you're a vital interest and we know how to blow stuff up. That's one thing the U.S. military is very good at. Uh, so I'm not too worried. Um, that doing this will will endanger our other interests. I mean, that's kind of whatever. That's kind of what hawks say whenever we do anything, withdrawing from anywhere. They said, oh, "Okay, we leave Vietnam, blah blah blah, will happen." Okay, now Vietnam's a happy, friendly U.S. trading partner, you know, like, and it actually played off very well against China later on. So, you know, the worst case scenario, I I hope it doesn't happen, but I also don't expect it to happen. So, no. Sure. So um, the rationale for uh, having and maintaining a footprint in, in Afghanistan comes from the attacks of September 11th. This was a regime that harbored and incubated a terror exporting regime. They refused to give up our their combatants. We invaded as a result. There were about 37 people in the United States who didn't want to go to war in Afghanistan in October of 2001. Um, and I don't think any of them are present. Uh, second, the legal rationale comes from a 2001 authorization of use of military force, which is still in effect. Um, we have legal, moral, and, uh, ration and, and, and military rationale for being in that country. Second, the notion that it is a war from an American perspective over the course of the last six years since 2014 when NATO-led combat operations ceased um, tests the tensile strength of the word's definition. And it is a war, most certainly, from the perspective of Afghans who are fighting it. From the American perspective, it hasn't produced a casualty, an American casualty, in 18 months uh, as a result primarily of the fact that we have a very limited footprint and limited operation, previously limited operational objectives, uh, much as uh, we've talked about in the previous segment, uh, like we do in tens of countries all over the world. Americans operating from behind high walls and using drone strikes and local intelligence to achieve limited gains. Um, the threat, and I want to actually briefly talk about this uh, SIGAR report, the most late, the latest SIGAR report, um, describes the kind the operational nation building that we were engaged in, which really amounted to bureaucratic inertia after 2014, to the extent that there was any effort to transform Afghan society. It wasn't a, a cogent effort, most certainly. Um, however, even in this bleak and clear-eyed assessment, uh, from the inspector general includes the following quote quote there will be likely times in the future when insurgents control or influence over a particular area or population is deemed an imminent threat to u.s interests uh, a competent american uh, presidency would not allow an imminent threat to u.s interests or american citizens to metastasize which means that we will not be done with our presence in Central Asia, much like we withdraw, uh, our precipitous withdrawal resulted in more combat and larger troop deployments. I fully anticipate that in the very near term, we will see a return to Afghanistan at a time and place not of our choosing and with the associated tactical disadvantages. So um, a quick follow up to that, um, you know, uh, Zed brought up this question of whether we were there for national security reasons or for really, you know, world building, culture building to export American democracy and values. Um, and it, it really makes me think of what to me has been one of the main uh, questions watching the imagery coming out over the last few days, which is the question of the women in Afghanistan. I mean, it's so hard not to feel their plight um, at just such a gut level. I mean, 20 years ago, you know, we all know how the Taliban ruled um, the sort of really, really, really just stomach churning way that they treated women. Um, uh, at the same time, um, you know, I've been asking myself, you know, the women in Afghanistan under American occupation, it, they didn't exactly have civil rights, right? I mean, a, a civil right is a compact you make with a government who you consent to their governance, right? A civil right is only something that can be protected by sovereignty, national sovereignty. 
in a way, what women uh, in Afghanistan had over the last 20 years was something more like an occupation-protected privilege, right? Um, so, so it made me think even, like, is that even the question? You know, I went into this thinking, okay, the question is, like, are our troops' lives worth the rights of millions of women? And that seemed like a really hard question to answer. But now I'm even thinking, like, you know, we, we like Zed said, we were sort of not really able to get Afghanistan to a place where those rights were worth very much. I'm really interested how you guys are thinking about about women in Afghanistan. Uh, let's start with you, Noah. I mean, it's absolutely tragic uh, what is happening and what is about to happen to the women of Afghanistan um, and to uh, just about anybody who is going to run afoul of this regime. We've already seen, you know, despite the friendly face that it tries to put onto the cameras in Kabul, we've seen quite a bit of uh, uh, retributive violence and reprisals against uh, individuals who worked for and with this government. We have a moral obligation to them, I would, def I would maintain. Um, moral obligations uh, do not move those who fancy themselves to be rational foreign policymakers, they perceive those to be um, uh, trite considerations, to be uncharitable, but at the very least, certainly not strategic considerations. I don't think that's true. Uh, intangibles have a very powerful and profound effect on the conduct of foreign policy, um, observable throughout history. Nevertheless, it is not an argument that I would say uh, moves should move American policymakers. The, the interest of the United States should be to maintain and defend the interests of the United States, many of which are imperiled in ways that we've described here. Um, but it will compound, I think, the problem politically for the administration when they, you know, their commitments to the to human rights and to the inviolable uh, autonomy of uh, of women in, uh, in in Afghanistan is put on trial and is on display for every American to watch on their television screens as those rights are violated and the promises that we made to this country over 20 years are abrogated. That will become a difficult hurdle for this administration to overcome. As you saw yesterday in this press conference from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who professed his profound regret over what's happening to the women of Afghanistan. And we will definitely go to the United Nations General Assembly and protest as loudly as we possibly could. How facile, how unequal to the moment uh, and I don't think the American people are going to love it. Now, is that a rationale for going back in? Probably not. I think the security rationales are far more compelling, but it compounds, as we said, the political problem for the administration. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Noah Noah's spot on in the sense that, you know, U.S. policy is not based around, uh, you know, making sure that other countries have 2021 U.S. standards on women and feminism and so on and so forth. And it, it would be a, a kind of a fool's errand and a final sign to, to promote that or try to do that. Uh, after 20 years, they did achieve some gains. And, you know, I, I, I wrote an article uh, for Newsweek uh, some months ago talking to a lot of people who work with Afghan women, both in and around Afghanistan in the nonprofits and NGO world. And I think, you know, they the phrase they always use is called preserving the gains, right? Because they did make some gains in some cities. Uh, which women had expanded access to education. They had expanded access to employment. Uh, they were women in government. Uh, but fundamentally, you can't really transform a culture from top down through, you know, tons and tons of foreign aid money and a limited military presence. And I think that would be a very, un, you know, it's a very unsatisfying answer for a lot of Americans. But, you know, I watch a lot of these Western reporters in Afghanistan and like they're talking to the Taliban because Taliban are doing more press conferences than Joe Biden. Uh, they've become very media savvy. <laughs> and all of their questions seem to be based around probably that bucket of women's rights, which I obviously I have a very moral, I have a very strong moral feeling about that. You know, I'm not from Afghanistan. Uh, my, par my parents are from Karachi in Pakistan. I used to go to, uh, you know, Pakistan quite often in the summer and stay with family. And um, this was a struggle even in Pakistan at times to, to assert, to assert the right for women's education, particularly in the north, which is the more tribal region, which is closer to Afghanistan culturally and socially. And uh, everyone knows about Mala Yousafzai and, and her, her, her travels. Um, so I do feel a very strong moral obligation personally, and I donate a lot of money personally to like girls education in the developing world, like in terms of my charitable giving. So I believe in that. Uh, I don't think it's really a goal of U.S. policy or something that's going to move U.S. policymakers um, beyond things like funding UNICEF and the U.N. World Food Program. You know, I had a professor who was head of the World Food Program, and she ran a program in, I think, parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan where she'd basically pay the head of the household so they let their girls go to school. And one time the Taliban insulted her and said, you're running the women's food, foods program. And she said, oh, that's not an insult to me. You know, it's, she, so I, I, you know, at a, at a personal and moral level, I do feel very strongly about that, Bhatia, but I don't think it's a compelling 
interest for U.S. policymakers. And honestly, if I was a Western journalist in Afghanistan right now, I'd be more interested in like, can the Taliban actually run stuff? Or is there going to be another civil war because they can't run stuff? Are they letting criminals go free? Can people go to their shops? Can uh, Are people in government positions getting paid? Like I'm thinking about the stability of the society and where the average person can actually get by more so than I'm wondering whether Afghanistan is going to, you know, adopt all of America's social values, because that's, that's something that'll take generations if it happens at all, right? It's not, it's not, you know, we, we tend to look at the rest of the world through an American lens sometimes, and that's kind of a mistake. We should be thinking about the basics of a state, the basics of security and consolidation right now, or whether Afghanistan is going to see another civil war yet again, because the Taliban can't run, to any, run anything, and it's not clear uh, right now, so... So let's take another quick break. Um, I do want to continue kind of the, at this point, kind of like more theoretical doctrinal points about foreign policy. So let's, let's pick that up when we get back. Again, you're listening to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We're talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal with Noah Rothman and Zed Jelani. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week, we're talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal, lessons, how it went wrong, and all of that. Um, so Noah and Zed, I'm going to make it a, a little personal here. Um, I, I, I think I agree and disagree with both of you on some of this. I could probably come down personally somewhere in the middle of you guys. I guess my, real quick, my, my, my personal story here, you know, I grew up in the New York area, um, basically around the Hudson River. Um, I saw the smoke from the Twin Towers on 9-11. It was kind of like my visceral, I was in seventh grade. It was my kind of visceral awakening that evil exists in this world and that we will fight evil or be subsumed by it. I was kind of a quintessential, I was kind of the token Bush era neocon, I would say, in middle school and high school. That was very much kind of my foray into kind of right of center thought. And I very much retain hawkish instincts, which is probably where Zed would disagree with me, vis-a-vis our core national security threats, the Chinese Communist parties of the world, the Iranian regimes of the world, and so forth. But in the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, I have truly been sobered by kind of the democracy exporting um, project of, you know, from neoconservatism, neoliberalism, humanitarian interventionism, the power, responsibility to protect, whatever you want to call it, right? A a lot of these kind of um, international relations theories tend to kind of merge as we saw in Libya and some other places. But I guess my question to, um, to, to, to both of you, and Noah, we could start with you. Um, why am I partially wrong, at least? Um, like, uh, what, have I taken like, the wrong lessons to basically look at what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and say that even if I'm instinctually hawkish, I am deeply skeptical of America's ability to kind of try to shape the world in, in, in its image? No, I think it would be irrational for you not to be skeptical of that mission, <clears throat> given the last 20 years you've lived through. Um, the notion that you can, as said, said multiple times, transform a country from the top down and from a continent away, and it's political culture, particularly cultures that are thousands of years old, um, is hubristic and has failed in, in two instances here. I grant that most assuredly. I do not, however, grant the notion which is popular uh, on the part of particularly uh, aspects of the more isolationist oriented right, um, which is there are certain cultures that are not amenable to democracy, not like us. We're just better, just a little better, right? Um, The literature is replete with this. Somehow Germany managed to overcome its attachment to Prussian militarism. Somehow Japan managed to overcome its feudal structure. Somehow South Korea managed to become a democratic technological powerhouse. But we were there for as long as we were not because we were trying to transform these societies into democracies. We were there for military purposes, for geostrategic purposes. Democracy promotion was incidental. We were in South Korea and remain in South Korea for as long as we were because we're preventing and deterring conflict, not to promote democracy. South Korea was a military dictatorship until the 70s. Uh, And that wasn't a problem because we were trying to promote democracy. Democracy promotion was incidental. And that's sort of how this happens. And you can see it happening in places like um, 
Iraq, and even in Afghanistan, which were gradually developing civil society. Uh, and, and Iraq continues that project. It has been arrested in Afghanistan. Perhaps it doesn't it doesn't stay arrested, but it, it is temporarily sidetracked. Um, but it's the sort of thing that happens entropically over the course of the United States pursuing its geostrategic interests in these countries. And that's where I don't think the notion that it's impossible to promote democracy in these regions is a, is a, is a true narrative, is, 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 a, is a, genuine, um, a genuine policy proposition because it has happened and it can happen. And I don't think there's any culture on the planet Earth that is culturally uh, uh, incompatible with democratic and Republican institutions um, because the yearning for freedom, I do believe, is universal in the human soul and it can materialize it just needs the space to do so so zed we'd love for you to, to respond to that um you could take a multiple directions you could, you could tell me why my hawkish instincts are wrong <laughs> if, if you want to or um i would also kind of love you i i actually also like maybe you can first say whether you agree with what noah ended that on because that was really interesting um kind of this this uh very kind of george w bush-esque notion that kind of like the human soul like yearns for freedom like let's start there do you agree with that zed uh, I some I somewhat do. Like, I actually do think that people who would say something like, you know, Afghanistan's a backwards country; it will never embrace democracy. We're stupid to think it would. Yeah, they're wrong. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what the natural evolution of their culture and society would look like. Uh, the question really is, though, like, what are people's priorities? People actually, it's kind of a like. Uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal or something that Maslow actually made a hierarchy of needs. He didn't actually do that. It's kind of a, it's a misunderstanding. But like, think about the Maslow hierarchy of needs, what people want and what they need. Uh, you know, first, they need basic security. Then they need like good, stable employment. They got to make sure that people, when they call the police, the police actually come. If they if their local, you know, warlords promise them, you know, three bags of rice, they actually get the bags of rice. Uh, I think once they've achieved all those things, then I think that the higher order kind of values, including... Uh, some form of competitive election, self self government, in, in that kind of liberal democratic sense that's that's popular in the West. I do think a lot of that makes sense to them, and I do think that a lot of developed countries have gone in that direction uh, eventually, including, of course, Japan, Germany, South Korea, which even after the war was a dictatorship for quite some time before it became democratic. Uh, Latin and Central America, and I do think that's a good aspiration or ideal, but we have to be realistic about how you get there. I brought this up earlier and I want to expand on it a little bit. Um, it's weird to see a Pakistani giving the British credit for anything. I get to celebrate kicking them out twice a year because I'm Pakistani American. Um, and I have family who are Indian. So really three, I can celebrate three <laughs> times a year if I want to. Um, but one thing that the British did in the subcontinent is that they stayed there for hundreds of years and they built up a bureaucracy and an infrastructure that actually gave them a state to hand off when there was the independence and the partition, right? Uh, the Pakistani military and Indian military largely came out of people who worked for the British Indian military and who fought the Japanese during World War II, right? Uh, they they actually had something to hand down to them, even even when they were like, it was a brutal colonial setup that was, you know, developing Britain as much as it was developing India. Uh, but it was something to hand down to them. It was like a re there were generations of people who kind of understood, like, the basics of a nation state, the idea that we are a nation, both Jinnah and Gandhi. Uh, the founder of uh, Pakistan, Jinnah, and the leader of uh, India's independence movement, Gandhi, spoke about how when it comes to politics, we're not Hindus and Muslims and Christians. We are just Indians or we are just Pakistanis. Like this, this notion is actually very, very hard to develop. If you look at the history of nation states, they fought bloody wars and had genocides and slavery and so on and so forth just to create their countries, right? Like it's not just like a natural concept to everyone. And Afghanistan is one of those few places in the world that doesn't really have that concept. Uh, they've been trying to build it, but it would it would have just taken a lot more than 20 years to get there. And when I said we fought the war on the cheap, I'm not trying to be dismissive of the blood and treasure. I, I already indicated that I thought Biden overall was right to disengage, and it probably isn't worth it as a U.S. vital security interest. But when I say they fought it on the cheap, I'm saying relative to what maybe it would have taken to achieve the goal. I think it maybe would have taken you know several generations of military presence with far more troops and far more money, and also just some some willingness to actually work with like the local systems. I mean, another part of the cigar report talks about how like, uh, you know, we invested like a billion dollars in like lawmaking and like legal programming, right? And the people on the ground in Afghanistan were like, what the heck is this? We do all informal transactions. They, I think they said 80 to 90% of their transactions are all like informal. They don't want to use a court system. 
So like you have to deal with that for a long time as you build this like larger civilian core. But we were telling everyone, oh, we'll be gone in four years. We'll be gone in five years. You know, Obama was saying you were going to be gone when he was the president. Right. We were never invested enough, nor were we pragmatic enough, I think, to actually create the situation in Afghanistan, which I think could have been a positive thing if we were if there was a political will to do it. But I think doing it on the cheap wasn't really good for us. And it really wasn't good for Afghanistan because the past few years, we've just been like bombarding them and like blowing up rural areas because we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to risk uh, Americans dying. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the government we set up just kind of evaporates without a whole lot of fighting. Uh, although, yes, I do agree with Noah that uh, Biden and Sullivan overstated it. I think something like 60,000 Afghan troops have died over the course of the war. There were people who fought. Um, but fundamentally large portions of the country just wanted the war to end. You know, these people have been living under civil war forever. They don't particularly love the Taliban, but I don't think they also hate it as much as Americans hate it. And it's not as far from the culture they've established and maintained as we think. So I, I guess another question that comes immediately to mind here, um, and no, we can start with you as well. What broader lessons we can take away from this vis-a-vis the intelligence community, vis-a-vis the military establishment, the generals? I mean, a lot of people in kind of in my group chats and in my circles are just absolutely livid um, at, at the generals, probably above all else. I mean, you know, we were told for 10, 15 years now this was a worthwhile mission that we could train the Afghan forces, obviously, to fight for Afghanistan, to care about the institutions of governance that we were trying to establish there. Um, and, you know, uh, we get out in, in uh, I would say, objectively horrific fashion. Uh, we got out um, and then, you know, the Taliban overruns the country and basically five days here. I mean, um, I, the, the, I guess the number one thought that I just cannot get out of my head, I, I, I think about it like every 10 minutes, it's, really, it's like debilitating, is just the grief of the Gold Star families. I mean, how do we tell them that their children did not die in vain here? So um, what kind of broader lessons can we, can, can we take away here um, with respect to kind of uh, strategic failures in the intelligence and or military apparatuses? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not prepared yet to render a judgment on the intelligence community because I don't know what what we knew and what we did not know. There's a lot of butt covering in the press right now from uh, you know intelligence senior intelligence officials tell us that they always knew this was going to happen. And how dare anybody think otherwise? Uh, there's a lot of conflicting reports there, and we won't know the full story for for quite some time. I do share your antipathy towards. Um, the brass, uh, it takes a particular sort to rise uh, within um, the American military, and it's a political uh, mission as much as it is about military competence. And there's no justification, that no rationale that makes any sense for why we uh, evacuated the military first, why we abandoned Bagram Air Base, why we decided that this commercial airport, which cannot execute the mission that it's trying to execute, by the way, is not going to happen until we resume commercial flights out of this single tarmac airport, um, the the, the, huge historic airlift that they're envisioning will not occur. Um, It is surrounded by a human tide, which is producing images that you would have to have a heart of stone to look at and say, this is a disaster and it's a disaster of our making. That's a military failure uh, of profound importance. And we don't know whether the commander in chief demanded this. They could have. So there could be a lot. There's probably a lot of fathers of this horrific national security catastrophe, which is ongoing. Um, so I'm not prepared to render a judgment either way. I'm, I'm imagining that everybody deserves quite a lot of blame for this. Um, nevertheless, uh, what do we tell uh, Gold Star families who fought for this place? We tell them that we have not had a massive, successful, foreign-directed terrorist attack on U.S. soil in 20 years. That's worth a trillion dollars to me. If you had told Americans on September 10th, 2001, if you would pay 10 trillion dollars, you know, a staggering amount of money to prevent this from happening. Would they have? Absolutely. Would they do it again? Absolutely. Um, This was a successful mission from that perspective. Disrupting and deterring terrorist operations is not an entropic thing. It doesn't just happen. We made it happen. We engineered it. And we're abandoning that mission. And I hope to God that what we see as a result isn't a resumption of the status quo ante 2001. So Zed, I want you to also give your answer, but no, a quick follow-up to you. Um, I think that's, I, I think that's an excellent answer. Actually, it's just, it's by far the strongest point that I've heard about you. Because I, I again, I, I remember September 12, two thousand one. You know, it's a couple of days later. Bush with the megaphone, the rubble, the, the ground zero. I mean, harrowing images. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. If you had said at the time twenty years of no domestic terrorist attacks, that would that would have been taken as a monumental victory for the U.S. My only quick follow-up though is, um, 
How much of 9-11 in reality was not about, quote unquote, fighting them there, but was actually about immigration visas and whatnot? Because if I, if I recall, a, a, a disproportionate plurality, perhaps an outright majority of the hijackers were here. Um, they, they got visas. They, over, they overstayed their visas. Um, it, a lot of folks, I think, especially on the right, would say we seem inclined now to be making a lot of similar mistakes. Um, we're taking a lot of people probably with little vetting here. Um, so I, how would you respond to that? I don't know how I would respond to that. I mean, this is a, di a distinction between a domestic law enforcement issue and a matter of national security executed by the CIA and the, the United States military. They're just very distinct buckets of policy portfolios here. So um, no, I don't I don't necessarily see the distinction. Okay, I know it's enough. one that burns fair brightly enough. in the minds of the of particularly the American right, who is skeptical of immigration. I am far less skeptical of immigration, particularly the sort who is coming here after having worked with us for 20 years on the ground in a combat you know, zone. The people who came to us, for example, from South Vietnam, South Vietnam are exemplary citizens. And it was people like Robert Byrd who said, oh, they're all prostitutes, they're all criminals. Um, and they objected to the resettlement, to their detriment, to their moral failure. Uh, and as a result, a lot of South Vietnamese came here and voted Republican for most of their uh, adult lives. So uh, I don't I don't anticipate that we'll have many problems. I know uh, Afghan refugees, they're restaurateurs here, they're successful citizens, they're very good people, uh, and they deserve every opportunity that we have promised them. Okay, fair enough. Um, and Zed, uh, how would you respond to my question about kind of broader lessons uh, with respect to the intelligence community and or the military establishment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Noah's answer on the intelligence community is a good one because I don't think we're we're not getting the full picture or the full story, right? I think uh, the the phrase goes that success has many fathers and you know failures an orphan. I think we're getting a lot of finger pointing, um, and it's it really has to be reported out. Like someone who has the information has to report it out to really understand what happened. But my sense, if I just had to make like a wild like you know this is my hunch, is that the administration didn't actually expect that the government that America had been training for twenty years was going to collapse so quickly. Um, if they had expected it and they still did everything exactly the same, we would consider them to be complete failures uh, because they didn't have any real plan or contingency for what was happening. I mean, I, again, I want to stress that, like, apparently the Taliban was not inhibiting people uh, at the actual airport. They actually ceded control of that to the to the Americans to get their people out. But it was America that didn't have a plan to do it. Right. And, you know, part of this might also be that if they had started evacuating people earlier, they maybe the Afghan government would have fled earlier. You know, Ashraf Ghani with his hundred and seventy million dollars. Now that's been reported and he's he's living. He's going to live his life in uh, the Emirates or maybe he'll come here to the United States with his daughter in Brooklyn, who's a, an avant garde sort of uh, hipster artist. Uh, you know, it shows you the kind of people that are put in charge of this that are in charge of this country. Um, but I you know, I, I think it was large. I think we'll, we'll probably see that they. They were caught they were caught unaware of a lot of things and it's just it's a moral travesty that people were hanging on to an airplane and falling out of the sky like someone should lose their job over that i don't know who should lose their job over that i think i just have to be investigated but like that, that is a completely unacceptable situation it'll go down in history as a, as a tragedy and a shame um and yeah so i i think i on the intelligence front we'll just have to see uh, I, I'm, you know, what you would have to tell people who, who are in the Gold Star families, who've lost family members to this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. It's the same thing that, you know, John Kerry was saying when he was uh, before Congress saying, how do, you, how do you get the last person to die for this? Um, you know, we, we should do everything we can to support our veterans and to support the families of those who are fallen. We should, uh, we should recognize that they, did, that they paid the ultimate price for their country. Um, but you know, it was it was ultimately the strategic failure on the behalf of the United States. We're kind of out, you know, out shooting our own reach. You know, kind of reaching too far for what we were trying to do with nation building, uh, when it should have just been a short security operation. And uh, unfortunately, that to speak to your question on the visas and, and the the immigrants, I mean, it also it also shows you that like you know, a nation's security is not based on just like taking and holding foreign countries, right? We had multiple terrorist attacks over the past 20 years, and Omar Mateen, we had domestic terrorists, of course, in El Paso and other places, we had ISIS-inspired terrorists. You know, ISIS didn't, of course, ISIS holding parts of Iraq and Syria was, was horrible and for those people in the, the region and everything, but, you know, terrorist ideology and, and inspiration can spread in all sorts of ways now. You don't, you don't need any home base in any place. And it's funny, the Taliban, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the Taliban actually went to the Chinese government it made a public statement that they that they're they're not going to interfere in Xinjiang with with the Uyghurs, uh, because I think the Taliban's actually kind of afraid now that like if one of their guys goes and does something stupid in a foreign country, the PLA will come in and like you know bomb the bomb the crap out of Afghanistan. So 
I don't know. I don't know what the Taliban's relationship is going to be um, to organizations that actually would be exporting things. I think they're going to have their hands full trying to keep their country stable and prevent another uprising or civil war, which which is entirely possible, uh, given the state of institutions in Afghanistan. So I, you know, we also have every corner of this country mapped out with satellites by now and all kinds of intelligence. And, you know, I, I think it'd be pretty foolish if the Taliban were to get involved with any kind of foreign terrorist organization or, or anyone who's exporting terrorism at this point. But, uh, you know, we'll see because now now the decision is made. We'll have to see. So I will also say I have seen veterans saying things like, you know, the the payback to me is that not a single other American troop will have to die for this war. So I have also seen that point of view. I want to point that out. All right, just two more quick questions for you both, and we'll let you go. Um, so I, there's polling that shows that there has, some of the polls show that up to 70% of Americans support this withdrawal, not the way that it went, but you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, the polling was was really, really staggering. And if you had asked me two weeks ago, you know, what, you know, our, our, our media would look like today, I would have expected that you would have seen sort of the MAGA right trying to give Trump the credit for this withdrawal and the left sort of celebrating, you know, the end of this forever war and, and praising Biden. And instead, what we've really seen in the media has been just this wall to wall bipartisan consensus uh, condemning President Biden. Um, I've been watching a lot of Fox News and a lot of CNN side by side, and it's been very, very similar. So I want to ask you both, like, what did I get wrong? Why was I so wrong about this? Why is the media not reflective of those polls? And Noah, specifically to you, are 70 percent of Americans who supported this withdrawal just wrong. Um, let's start with you, Noah. <clears throat> well, I, I personally don't think that any public policy should be predicated on polling. Uh, polling is extremely fickle. The American public is of two minds on Afghanistan as we speak. They don't like what they're seeing and they want something better, but they also want to get out and they want to get out yesterday. And these two things are in direct conflict. Um, in the Burkean for formulation, the public is owed the best judgment of the representatives. Their representatives uh, should not bow to the whims of a, of a, of a fickle and uh, perhaps genuinely ignorant uh, of policy uh, electorate. Um, that's just not their job description. So uh, I'm, I'm, I tend, for, particularly when it comes to national security, to be contemptuous of the notion that the American public has to lead. You have to convince them. Just real, just real quick, real, real quick for the listeners. That's Edmund Burke's speech to the, to the electors of Bristol, England, in 1774. One of my very favorite speeches of all time. But go on, Noah. <laughs> Thank you very much, and, and for that citation. I'm not sure I would know exactly where that speech came from, so I appreciate that, Josh. Um, nevertheless, uh, I, I'm of a mind that, in the, uh, and, and presidents since the war on terror began have, uh, have been uh, dutifully observant of the idea that even though the American public maybe doesn't like this or the other initiative, um, it is in our national interests to pursue it, particularly when it comes to the, sa the safety and security of American interests and American service personnel and American citizens abroad and at home. Um, so public opinion being what it is uh, you know, today is not something that I think uh, you can predicate policy on. Are they wrong? Were, were the American public wrong to support withdrawal? I think they were. I think looking at the state of affairs today suggests that they were. Uh, I think that an indefinite, if not generational, two, three generations deployment in this region, uh, in the pursuit of our interests in the region was justified, warranted, and affordable. Uh, I know that's not a popular proposition, but I also know that it's one that you can, if you have the slightest amount of gumption, communicate to the American people. The problem is, is that we have a political class that perceives itself to be beholden to the electorate, not responsible to the electorate. Um, there's very different con considerations uh, for policymakers. One requires a lot more courage and a willingness to lose your political power, a willingness to sacrifice your office in the pursuit of a greater good. And we don't see that in the political class and haven't for some time. Zed? Yeah, I mean, you know, part, part of this is like, if we are going to preach democracy to the world, we have to practice it at home. And, you know, on matters of war or matters of other policy, if there's a strong public consensus and we're going to say, no, we're going to keep sending your kids to die and we're going to keep extracting money from you by force and we're going to do this all in your name with the American flag flying. Uh, you can't kind of, you can't, you, you can't really ignore the people if, if a strong consensus is formed. And I do think over the past few years, it wasn't just fickle polling moving around. I think there has been a consensus formed in the United States that we need to get out and it would be undemocratic just to like, you know, just ignore the, the people that you serve. Um, that being said, the public is capable of being wrong. And I do think that people who think this is wrong should be arguing it very forcefully to try to persuade the public. Uh, to change their minds. I, it's probably too late at this point, although I respect people who are doing that. 
Um, I don't think that Americans had the political will to truly nation build in Afghanistan. And what it would have taken, we would have taken, I don't know, a hundred years and hundreds of thousands of troops and much more pragmatism when it came to forcing modern ideas of, of, of women's rights and law and, and order um, than, than we actually pursued. Um, but yeah, I do think the political consensus formed and I think Biden was responsive to that. And look, I do think that Biden's approval rating did drop over the past like week or two. Um, and the media coverage has been negative, but I think that largely has to do just with the sheer amount of incompetence on the getting out front, more so than like the war itself, right? I think the war itself was very unpopular, but Americans probably thought that like, oh, you know, we can probably at least evacuate Americans before, you know, having people falling out of the sky from airplanes and we can get our allies out and so on and so forth. And that wasn't achieved. And I think, like I said, I think someone should be losing their job over that. I don't know who, uh, but at some point, in the chain of command, some really bad decisions were made with regards to the actual how the withdrawal was done. Uh, that being said, the other hand, to be fair, I don't know that many countries that have been through some kind of revolution or violent takeover of government where everything did was run extremely orderly and everything went off without a hitch. Um, there was going to be some chaos regardless, although I have a hard time believing a country this advanced, this rich, and this has this uh, effective and powerful of a military couldn't have done a better job than that. And I think that's what soured a lot of the public over the past couple of weeks. All right. Last question for you both, and we'll let you go. Um, one thing I keep seeing is people really worried about the hit America's standing in the world is going to take. And I feel sort of weird when I see that. Like, it seems really insecure to me. And I actually really like that Trump did not care what anybody thought about us. I, too, do not care what anybody thinks about us. I only care what I think about America and whether America is acting morally or not. So why am I wrong? Convince me. Zed. Look, I think fundamentally the U.S. government has to be responsive to the U.S. public. That was the, the previous question. Um, but sometimes it serves the U.S. public to have other countries think well of us, too, um, including like wanting to work with us on economic projects. Right now, China is stomping all over the world uh, with their initiatives in Belt and Road in Asia, which I think is winning them a lot of friends that should be our friends. Um, so, yeah, I do agree with you that like fundamentally we should do what we think is right. We're the U.S. government is accountable and sovereign to Americans, but it does kind of help sometimes to, to reassure your allies and to make sure your rivals, your enemies are actually like, you know, on their toes a little bit around you. Um, so to the extent that serves that end, I do think we should we should care about other people and what they think in, in regards to this or any other foreign policy. No, I think it's yeah, I think it's Stephen Walt's formulation um, <clears throat> about the theory of bandwagoning versus balancing. Um, which is that a nation that is threatened, a small nation that is threatened by a larger nation has two options. One, it can bandwagon with this great power that is threatening it, essentially mirror it and subsume itself into a sphere of influence or balance against it, which requires allying itself with a, another power that is opposed to that threatening, menacing power, but maybe very far away. Um, the United States benefits from a lot of balancing. We have balancers all over the planet. And to the extent that those countries are committed to that course, it is only as a result of their assurances that the United States will have their back. I don't believe that this has advanced that, that this project has advanced that uh, in the minds of people in Taipei and in uh, Kiev. And most threateningly, from my perspective, um, the Baltics. Um, one of the war plans that keeps everybody up at night is the notion that uh, Moscow will uh, do what it had, it had done in 2007 and 2014, respectively, which is engineer a military provocation in Estonia and perhaps take a hold of some territory, threaten the uh, NATO alliance and test the NATO alliance's commitment to Article 5 mutual defense provision. Would the United States commit to a global war with Russia? Would the alliance commit to a global war with Russia for the sovereignty of Tallinn? I'm not sure. And I kind of don't think so. And I know that the Kremlin is asking itself its very same question, and it would advance its 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 interests quite a lot to shatter the alliance. Um, today, in Parliament, fire-breathing speeches over uh, what Joe Biden has done. In Germany, fire-breathing, vocal assaults on American leadership. Um, this is the sort of thing that tests the longest-lived, uh, most fruitful military alliance in the history of the planet Earth. And it's been a, a significant benefit to the United States insofar as our global presence assures 
a global marketplace. You know, the first time this has existed in, in 1991, we had the first global marketplace since it collapsed in 1914. And it has been a profound benefit to everybody in the, in, in the West, um, global commerce, and it's assured by virtue of the United States being able to navigate the, the seas, uh, for example, uh, freely and preserving open navigation. And that's the sort of thing that is threatened by the resumption of spheres of influence, which can happen if we allow bandwagoning to return. Uh, and I fear that that is the trajectory that we're on. Zed, Noah, thank you both so much. This has been incredible. Thank you guys both so much for joining us. Thank you. So Noah and Zed have left. Uh, Badia, we have now heard a deeply wonky debate over what happened in Afghanistan, lessons to take from that. What was uh, what was your takeaway? It was just great to hear them in conversation with each other. A lot of overlap, a lot of really smart points were made on both sides. I, I guess I disagree with both of them. I, I really thought I would agree more with Zed, but he agreed more with Noah and I guess more with you. So it, it was just a real pleasure to listen to them. I also was a little surprised that the point of disagreement was not kind of emphasized a little more. Um, especially because I kind of pressed Zed actually when Noah said that one line about a very kind of George W. Bush-esque about like the human soul universally quenching for freedom. That's kind of like the bipartisan foreign policy establishment's creedal cry over the past half century on both the, the neoconservative right and the neoliberal left is this notion that like everyone in, in their core is kind of like a Jeffersonian or Madisonian lowercase d Democrat. And from my perspective, it's I, I, don't want to, I want to pick on Noah, who's an extremely bright and sophisticated guy, but I, I think that line of thought. Um, is ultimately responsible for a lot of these kind of foreign boondoggles that we've gotten into. So I, I was expecting stronger disagreement, at least on that. But yeah, it was a great debate. Um, and we, we were thrilled to have both of them. So um, again, this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a strong review. Five stars would be preferable. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. See you next time. See you next time.